Welcome to Wellness and Wisdom with me, Dr. Nadu Tuwakli. Here you can expect to hear conversations about everything women over 40 care about. From optimal wellness and peak performance, from intimacy to travel and finances and more. I will be speaking to interesting women and sometimes men to educate and motivate you to live your best life. If you want to find out more, please head over to my website, drtwarkley.com or subscribe to my blog. You can also read my book, Sex, Sanity and Sleep. We are in this together. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Wellness and Wisdom. Now, let's do this. My guest today is Dr. Lindsay Wells, ND, the current president of the Connecticut Naturopathic Physicians Association. Dr. Wells' main focus in treatment is pediatric, but she is going to share with us some concepts that are relevant to all ages. Plus, as a woman, we are the hub of the family and society, so it behooves us to educate ourselves as much as possible about conditions that affect other family members. And of course, on a personal note, as a family medicine specialist, I also take care of children. So, since we're talking to someone from Connecticut, we must be talking about Lyme disease. But in addition to that, we're also going to touch on other tick-borne illnesses and also long COVID, which is on everyone's mind. Then we'll switch gears and talk about biomedical treatments of autism and community circles for women and how these circles can help women as they age. Dr. Wells has been a naturopathic doctor since 2016, and she also holds a bachelor's degree in public health and biology. She's given multiple talks on post-infectious syndromes and their management. She believes in a three-pronged approach, which she's going to discuss with us. And she's also going to tell us how she approaches a new autistic patient. So, Dr. Lindsay Wells, welcome to my podcast. I'm sure many people would like to know the answer to this first question, and that is, what is the difference between a naturopath, ND, and a regular MD? Well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, and in regards to that first question, so a naturopathic doctor, we get our doctorate from um, an accredited naturopathic medical school and it's a four-year education, but we focus not only just on the core sciences um, as you would go through traditional medical school, but we also then bring in modalities such as herbalism, nutrition, homeopathy, as well as hydrotherapy, which is the use of using different temperatures of water to stimulate the immune system. Um, so we do go through the pathophysiology and all the system spaces as we would and basic sciences, but we also have those extra modalities um, that we utilize in practice. Um, and that's one of our specialties. Cool. Now, the other thing I'd like you to kind of define for our listeners before we get started is the microbiome because these days everyone's talking about the microbiome and there may be many listeners who actually don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. Could you explain it? Sure, so the microbiome, this can, comprises of all of the germs that we essentially have in our gut, which can be billions of different germs. Um, some are good and some are bad. And really what we're seeing is that at the root of disease, uh, we always usually start with the gut because the microbiome and the gut health is so incredibly important. 
And so for instance, when we're talking about something like mood, so anxiety or depression, about 95% of our serotonin, which is that neurotransmitter that makes us feel happy and calm is actually made in the gut. So that's why you hear that term that the gut is the second brain, right? Because the gut holds a lot of information that's communicating with our brain based on um, different chemical signals that it's sending. But in general, the microbiome just consists of a lot of different germs, um, bacteria uh, that we then have to make sure we have uh, a nice, diverse, essentially microbiome to help decrease the, the presence of disease. So the microbiome is critical to health, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's one place, the gut, for instance, that you can go to address. Say that you have a lot of um, uh, symptoms that you don't actually know what your diagnosis is, and they're, they're vague symptoms maybe, and then they might be many different symptoms. One place to start is your gut, looking at your gut health, because you would be surprised how much improvement you can make in your current symptoms by just looking and addressing the gut and helping your gut health. So we always say start with the gut. In naturopathic medicine, we always say start with the gut. Right. So talking about the gut now, I think a lot of people are, they've just about gotten used to the idea of taking probiotics mm -hmm. to improve their gut health. And now they're being bombarded with the prebiotics and the postbiotics. And so patients often say, what's the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic? And that there is a lot of confusion because there's so much information out there. But a prebiotic, I think of these as certain things that help to feed the good bacteria in our gut. So um, a lot of times people will take prebiotic supplements, but I actually think you can get it from food a lot of times. So like think about your vegetables um, those are and fiber. Those all feed the good bacteria in your gut. So if you have a well-balanced diet, high in fiber and high in vegetables, you're really going to feed those good germs um, without having to take a supplement. Probiotics, there's many different strains available. The most common ones available are lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And then there's many different species, like subset of species within that. I think it's important when you're looking for a probiotic to find one that is diverse. Um, so there's many different species of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus in it. But just being mindful that although those are the two strains that have been studied the most, there's still so many more germs in our gut too. So it's good to focus on those, but just knowing that you know there's so much more that we don't know or so many different strains that we don't know. So with that, even though you're taking a probiotic, we really do still have to focus on getting in the fiber and the probiotics to feed all those other germs, um, good bacteria, I should say, in the gut to make sure that they're thriving as well. Right. So can we talk about long COVID a little bit? Sure. How would you define long COVID? So long COVID, this is where there's a persistence of symptoms post a COVID infection um, at least three months after one got sick. What I find interesting in my ex clinical experience is that with long COVID, the symptoms don't necessarily appear right after the infection or you have the infection and the symptoms persist, right? What I see is that this, there can be some vague uh, symptoms that occur weeks after the infection. So I'm talking like six to eight weeks. And that makes it confusing for the individual as well as the practitioner because you don't necessarily put 
or correlate the infection with the new onset of symptoms. But it's really important if you are experiencing new symptoms to look at your history in regards to you know, what has happened within the last few months leading up to this change. Because it very well could be that that COVID infection kind of just continued to uh, cause inflammation in your body that then ended up manifesting into these uh, new onset symptoms that you have. Right. So I know that um, they don't really know the cause of long COVID per se, mm -hmm. but as you implied, there could be multi, um, it's multifactorial. Absolutely. Um, so what do you think are the commonest causes of long COVID? So from my- All contributing factors. Right. From my experience, um, what I see is when there is somebody in my practice, an adult, that's experiencing long COVID symptoms, there usually is something else going on um, in the system, um, some other infection that is contributing to the symptoms that possibly got reactivated. So for instance, you know, I'm going to talk a bit more on tick-borne diseases and Lyme disease, but it every, I, I, every single person adult that was in my practice that had long COVID or was experiencing long COVID, we did test for tick-borne disease and they did come back positive for that. And there was a recent article done, I think last year, that also showed that, that the severity of um, COVID-19 and long COVID symptoms were correlated with tick-borne disease, specifically Borrelia burgdorferi, which is your, which is Lyme disease, but I also see co-infections like Bartonella and Babesia. So that is always something that I like to rule out um, if somebody's presenting with these symptoms, but also e uh, Epstein-Barr virus, we've seen to be reactivated. So that is one too that I will double check because uh, most of us have been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus and it's possible as the literature is showing that it's getting reactivated when COVID, you're getting exposed to COVID-19 and therefore you could be experiencing similar symptoms to Epstein-Barr virus. So those are the two main ones that I see, but I think there's other others as well that could be associated. So whether that's underlying inflammation or you have an autoimmune disease that might be dormant um, or uh, you know, not fully showing itself yet, that it's really an autoimmune process that I'm seeing um, in practice. Is that what you're seeing? Are you seeing anything like that? No, I think um, I, I think the jury's still out, mm -hmm. but a lot of people do think that there's an autoimmune um, component, but also, of course, comorbidities. I mean, each individual is different, as mm -hmm. we find in our practice, right? Absolutely. And so the other things that are going on with that particular patient may influence whether or not they are able to clear the virus and the symptoms completely. So for those of you who didn't get my joke earlier on, let me explain. Lyme disease is called Lyme disease because it is named after Lyme in Connecticut, where it was originally described. Am I wrong? You are absolutely correct. Okay. So folks in Connecticut always think Lyme. Ooh. So it's interesting today that you're here so you can explain to people how Lyme disease may not be um, as obvious to people in other parts of the country. And so oftentimes people have this chronic Lyme without realizing it, or as you say, it's contributing to other, um, other things. So tell us about your work with post-infectious disease syndrome. 
So with my work with post-infectious disease syndromes, I really focus on PANS PANDAS, and this is a pediatric illness. It stands for Pediatric Acute Neuropsychiatric Syndromes, and it's associated with different infections such as strep. That's usually the most common one, that, um, and that has to do with PANDAS, but then there's also other bacteria like mycoplasma as well as viruses, and I do classify tick-borne disease and Lyme disease to be a contributing factor, which is technically not in the diagnostic criteria for PANS pandas, but that's more due to political reasons, just because the climate around those chronic Lyme disease as well as PANS pandas is somewhat controversial. Um, but with that, um, Lyme disease and tick-borne illness, it's much more prevalent, in my opinion, than we think, and it is all over the country, um, Lyme disease and the tick-borne illness. Because I say tick-borne illness, but in reality, I probably should be saying vector-borne illness, just because these germs don't necessarily just harbor in a tick. So for instance, Bartonella, which is a common co-infection of Lyme, this can be transmitted through about seven different vectors. So cats, um, it's most commonly known as cat scratch disease. So with a cat scratch or a cat bite, it can be from um, fleas or lice. I just had a recent um, patient, it was just last week that I had come into my practice that their transmission or the reason they got Bartonella was because there was a, a flea infestation in their house. So that I had read about it in the literature, but I hadn't seen it in clinical practice yet. So that was uh, very interesting. But it could also be from um, sand flies, mosquitoes. There was one case report um, on spiders. Uh, as well as gestationally. So I'm just trying to say that we say tick-borne disease, but it doesn't necessarily just need to be transmitted through a tick. However, that is the most common. And for me, I'm always more worried about the ticks I don't find than the ticks I do find. Because if you were to find a tick on yourself, most likely you would take it off and maybe send it out to be tested or talk to your primary care doctor about maybe implementing some prophylactic antimicrobials or to just watch to see if you develop symptoms within two weeks or so. But that's not always the case for people. So if you don't find a tick on you and then all of a sudden you start to have some of these vague symptoms, um, you know, it should be ruled out uh, regardless of where you, you live. And it has been shown that tick-borne disease, it has been in every single state in the country and it's more common than we think. So I think the CDC, they just put out, it was last year that 476,000 cases of Lyme disease. So that's just Lyme, that doesn't include any of the co-infections. Um, and then also the British Medical Journal just put out that 14.5% of the population uh, tests positive for having antibodies to Borrelia burgdorferi. Again, just Lyme disease compared to the co-infections. And that's really important because um, Connecticut, notwithstanding, uh, a lot of even doctors think that Lyme disease is just a disease of the northeastern states mm -hmm. and don't really take account of it being present. For example, it's in California. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, as you said, it's all over the country. And while we're talking about vectors and microbiomes and stuff, uh tell me about your helmet therapy oh interesting so this is, is that controversial this is definitely controversial uh, but it is a therapy that i use frequently in my office and i call it almost like a game changer um, type of therapy so this is the use of 
bear with me when I say this, grain beetle worm eggs. Um, and <laughs> I know, <laughs> so, but it is very interesting because it's based on the hygiene hypothesis that as we have become more hygienic as a society, so this means more, you know, proce processing more foods and more industrialized, but using toilets, using hand sanitizers, not playing outside as often, we have um, altered our microbiome in a way that might not be so favorable. And so with the hygiene hypothesis, what we see is that as we become more hygienic as a society, at the same rate parallel is the increase in autoimmune disease. And so there is a researcher, his name is William Parker, and he did a lot of research, research on helmet therapy at Duke. And what he found is when he was doing it in his um, experiments for his PhD, that the animals that had the helmets in their microbiome were smarter, they were able to complete the mazes better, and they were healthier. So this um, then led to an increase in uh, looking at helmet therapy for the um, human population. And again, it's been shown that if those who have helmets in their guts, that they um, have less allergies, autoimmune disease has decreased, less asthma. They've used it in the autism population and also found that that was helpful for symptoms. And um, also in third world countries where they're not as industrialized, there is still helmets part of their microbiome and those countries actually have lower levels of autoimmune disease than we do here in the United States. So it's a very interesting therapy, um, but it's a very simple therapy. I actually tell people it's kind of like uh, a very strong probiotic for your gut. Um, and that's how I explain it to people. And what's interesting about the helmet therapy is that they're mutualists, so they're not parasites. And that's what some people get, like the yuck factor is associated with, but they just move through your system. And so I say it's always like an exercise for the immune system, um, but they pass through. So you do have to redose them every like two to three weeks, because physiologically that's how long they last in the system. And there's two, two, reasons why somebody wouldn't qualify for doing that therapy. One is constipation, right? Because we want to move them through the system rather than just having them stay dormant there and um, having a problem afterwards there. Or if somebody's on an immunosuppressive drug, because the whole purpose is to stimulate the immune system. And if we're suppressing it, we're not going to get the full benefits of the helmet therapy. So it's very interesting. Have you used it before in your practice? I have not. And I am a newbie as far as that's concerned because uh, for those who don't know, the word helminth means worm. So when I looked on your website and saw worm therapy, I said, oh, what is this? And then I read about it and I see it involves rat feces. So that really adds to the ick factor because the, the rat feces is eaten up by the beetles mm -hmm. and then you all come and harvest from the beetles. Yeah. Um, so I can see where folks could be a little bit weirded out by just the term. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, uh, I, I take your point that if you introduce worms, quote unquote, or helminths that are non-pathogenic, right, non-parasitic, 
it can't do that much harm, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like um, hookworms and tapeworms that we know uh, definitely cause um, pathology. So tell us um, how, do you use the helminth therapy in the treatment of autistic patients? I do use it um, with my children who have autism. Um, I will only do it if they're over the age of six and I like to do it in children that are somewhat verbal. The reason being is that if there was a problem with the helminth, it would cause severe abdominal pain. And if there was a problem, you it's only one dose of an antiparasitic of Viltricide to improve and um, get rid of the infection. But with my nonverbal younger children, sometimes we know that our children with autism, they don't necessarily present with the typical um, symptoms to be able to communicate what's going on, right? Like their gut symptoms might then present with say um, aggression or irritability rather than being able to communicate that their stomach hurts. And so it takes a little bit longer to understand what's going on. But I have had amazing success using it in the, my population, children with autism, just improving their symptoms. It's kind of like they, it decreases the inflammation. It decreases um, any type of allergy or allergic atopy symptoms, but they're just more aware, better eye contact, more verbal. It is improves their gut symptoms. It really can be a game changer for these children. But I also use it very frequently in the children with pans or pandas. And what I've seen and what we've been able to do in my practice is decrease the uh, need to get IVIG. Um, and that is one of the standard care of treatments for pans pandas, which is an invasive therapy. Um, and we're able to use the helmets instead. And we have great success with that in our practice. So how much does the helminth therapy cost? So it depends on where you source it from. So we have a lab that we source from in Sag Harbor in New York. So it's, it's local. Um, we're also, I also know the um, owner of the lab there, Dr. Sidney Baker. He's a medical doctor um, who is really like the grandfather of biomedical interventions for children with autism. He's been an amazing mentor to hundreds of physicians in our, um, in our field. He was trained by William Parker on how to cultivate the helmets. I've been to the lab and it's so clean and it's so beautiful. And I know that you were saying with the, the yuck factor with the rats and the beetles, but there's so much good energy in there. Dr. Baker is um, an older gentleman now, but he, he goes in every night and thanks thanks all the animals involved for the, how much they help. For pooping. Yes, essentially for pooping, but also for you know all the healing properties that they bring to different, to families and individuals. And so with the helmet therapy, it is an expensive uh, therapy. I think it's, you know, you're talking like $200 per dose around that amount, um, but it's once a month. It's in my practice, we dose once every three weeks. And what I'm able to do with that is it kind of evens out in regards to the price of, say they were taking supplements or other nutraceuticals, right? We're able to get them down on taking other supplements so they can just really take the helmet therapy and it ends up somewhat equaling out. But I think another thing about the helmets is you usually know if this is something you wanna continue with, if it's helpful or not. And you do see that probably within six months, so six doses. Um, so it's not something that you would continue with if you weren't experiencing any 
changes. Um, Any but that, benefit. Absolutely. Well, I smiled when you said you get it from New York because we know they're not going to run out of rats in New York. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so you've, you've got a good supply line. Absolutely. Here. So let's say a, an autistic child comes to you for the first mm -hmm. time. What kind of evaluation do you do at, at the beginning and what would be your first line of management? Great question. So my initial consults are about two hours in time. And the reason that is, is because I like to take a really comprehensive, extensive history. And when I'm listening to the parents giving me the history, I think in my head about like four different buckets, if that makes sense, of where this child could fall on, under. One is going to be gut, right? Because we know that children with autism, their gut microbiome is different than their neurotypical peers. So there's usually increase in say, candida or clostridia. Those are two really common ones that we see. So, so gut is a huge one. Um, the second one is mitochondrial. So the mitochondria, as people may know, are the energy, are the, the energy powerhouses of the cell. And about, it's been estimated that 60 to 80% of children with autism have mitochondrial dysfunction, which is a very high percentage. So that's another bucket. The other bucket is looking at detoxification or any type of metabolic disorders. And then the third, uh, sorry, the fourth one is going to be the immune system. Is there anything that's stressing the immune system? For instance, like an underlying infection, which is my specialty, um, but it's been amazing since doing this work. Just, I used to think Lyme disease and say autism were two completely separate things. But as I've been doing the work and testing, it's it's actually shocking how much of an overlap there is and um, uh, with autism and, and tick-borne disease. And when you address the underlying infections, the symptoms with autism improve. So those are my four categories, I guess you would say, that I kind of evaluate. And our children are not so simple, right? They are very complex. So usually children will fall into more than one category. And then I will explore further through some testing, so some biomedical testing to know exactly what am I dealing with in regards to their gut, right? Is there candida or clostridia or are they not absorbing their nutrients or are they, um, you know, have very high inflammatory markers in the gut like calprotectin or high zonulin for leaky gut? And then I, so I'll do different testing for that. And then I'll come up with a comprehensive treatment plan, but usually it's going to involve, you know, some sort of mitochondrial support, something to support the immune system and also to start treatment for the gut um, microbiome. And we see, you know, great improvements in, in the symptoms because I really feel like autism, it's a manifestation of something else going on physiologically. Um, and so with that, I feel like it's my job to explore further what's happening um, inside of their body and how we best can help to support them so they are comfortable and, and happy. Right. And as, as you know, and many people may not know, that most um, autistic kids are quote unquote normal in that first year. Mm -hmm. So it's, it sort of takes the parents by surprise when they Absolutely. start to realize that that child is a little different than other children. So mm -hmm. it's not, a lot of people think it's a genetic defect and you just have it from birth, but that's oftentimes not the case. So would you postulate that during that initial six months or whatever, six to nine months, that's when the, the damage is done in terms of 
the exposure to whatever it is that that makes their autoimmune system suddenly go out of whack or whatever it is the systemic changes that cause them to manifest as autism yeah so I, I use that common phrase that genetic loads the gun but the environment pulls the trigger right and so I think that there's a lot of compounding factors so there of course there's a genetic predisposition but it's too common now. It's one in 32 children. So there is absolutely environmental factors that are playing a role. And so these children might just be more sensitive to those environmental factors. And it can occur, you know, within that time period of really you're looking up until like 18 to 24 months. Um, that's the average age that a child will be diagnosed. And you might start to see some things, you know, are maybe nine to 12 months where maybe there's a bit of a delay in some of the developmental milestones, um, but it's not, and maybe there's some concern, but you know, it, it can come by surprise for, for some families. And it really comes down to the environmental factors that are impacting the gut, impacting the immune system, um, and that then results in the manifestation of autism. It is interesting what you said earlier about developing countries, mm -hmm. because you know, in developing countries, autism is not very common. Mm -hmm. I mean, kids may have rickets and malnutrition and all kinds of things. But autism is, is not up there. Mm -hmm. um, the autistic spectrum in the U.S., the prevalence is so much higher than so many other quote-unquote developing countries. So I think that there, there is definitely something to that, um, that theory. So if we come back to the microbiome, because that's pretty much where we came back to, how do you test someone's microbiome? Or do you just um, supplement it and hope for the best? So I will do testing. So I do like to do comprehensive stool analysis. So this will look for the beneficial bacteria in the gut as well as dysbiotic bacteria. So this might be imbalanced or pathogenic bacteria. It can look for yeast and parasites, but it also looks at digestive function. So is how is one digesting their food? Um, they're looking at, for instance, elastase. Um, looking to see if there's any inflammation in the gut. Also looking to see if they, um, they're short chain fatty acids to see if there's enough of that to help with feeding the good microbiome. So I will do a comprehensive stool analysis for those where it's indicated. I also like an um, organic acid test. It's a urine test. This is one that I do frequently in my children with autism. And it gives me about 84 different metabolites. So it looks at um, yeast markers, and this can look for candida in the gut or uh, yeast markers for, say, mold in the environment, which is also a whole nother um, uh, challenge for people. Um, but it will look for clostridia markers as well as some mitochondrial markers that I mentioned, some nutritional markers and um, uh, neurotransmitter markers. So I find that to be my kind of two go-tos that I will do that just gives me a lot of information as a baseline. And then from there, we can move on. Of course, if there's certain things on physical exam that's indicating that there's a challenge with the gut microbiome, like if somebody is very constipated, if they have a bloated or doughy belly, if they have um, eczema or dandruff or whiteness on their tongue, which could mean some yeast overgrowth, I will consider starting to implement a regimen before we get the test results back, right? So 
that could be probiotics, um, as well as possibly some antimicrobial, for instance, some herbals that I know are uh, helpful for uh, the dysbiotic bacteria. So the, I think one of the concerns with uh, autism management is that not all these tests are covered by insurance. And so if a parent doesn't have much resource mm -hmm. or resources, um, how much does this workup cost? So the workup can be, just the testing can be a few hundred dollars from those specialty labs, but you can get around it in the sense of, number one, it is out of pocket, but if you were to get an invoice, you could submit for um, your out of network uh, benefits for your deductible, if that's possible. Otherwise, you can do um, an ONP, so an OVA and parasite test, just through you know the traditional lab. You can run an organic acid test through, again, the traditional lab, but then it really comes down to taking a really good history and a physical exam, a comprehensive physical exam, as well as a nutritional physical exam, which I mentioned looks at the tongue and looks at the skin and looks at the nail, and then making your best clinical judgment based off of the who's present, who's sitting in front of you. Because I always say too, is like, what if all the testing comes back normal, right? Or, or like, for instance, like a stool test, that one, it depends on the stool that you collected. Things change. Every stool is going to be different with different germs, right? And so you still have to treat the child or the person in front of you. You can't just base it off a piece of paper and what the labs say, because if all the labs come back normal, but you still have somebody that has all the symptoms or is is struggling in certain aspects, it's still our job to, um, in my opinion, treat and then see what the, the outcome is. So if we input something, we, we um, add something into their protocol, they get better, that tells us something, right? They're, they're, so, you know, I, I understand it can be very pricey, but there are other ways that we can go around if that's not, if you're not able to do that, that's okay. We're still gonna treat the child that in front of us. Right, I say, I often say to my hormone patients, that I treat the patient, not the numbers. Absolutely. Because, you know, you can see lab work that says, no, no, you're great. Mm -hmm. And the person feels like, you know, um, or vice versa. Absolutely. You know, so um, I, I believe in treating the patient, not, not the stats. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the labs are helpful. But for your uh, tick-borne diseases, mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you do blood tests. I absolutely do blood tests. Um, so the the challenge about tick-borne disease is that the the labs through this like regular lab work so these are things like quest or lab corp that we use here um, on the east coast they're really not sensitive so it's very possible that somebody could you know have all of the symptoms still have lyme disease or the co-infections and it be a false negative that comes up in the labs so that's one that i i really also do with um, symptoms where I manage it that way because the testing is not that accurate unless you want, you can do specialty testing and that can be very expensive, that testing. And people sometimes want to know, but I do use antimicrobial herbals. And the reason I do that is because those herbs, they're able to cover multiple 
infections, right? So if I implement one, for instance, I know that it can hit Borrelia, Babesia, and Bartonella. And those are the three that I'm most concerned about um, because that's what I see manifesting in symptoms and disease. But it is helpful. Um, it's also helpful to when you do, say, for instance, an immunoblot for Lyme disease. For the CDC criteria, you need to have five positive bands. But in my opinion, if you have three bands, you shouldn't have three bands. That means your body has been exposed to it in the past and it, it, it's elicited an immune response to it, right? So, and if you're then presenting with all of the symptoms, it should be addressed. So I wasn't aware that, um, I, I guess I've never particularly looked for it, that uh, Quest and LabCorp will actually test for Bartonella and Babesia. They will, so they will use Bartonella hensilae you can test for Bartonella hensilae and Babesia microti. So with that though, there's so many other species in the, their, um, you know, like we have Bartonella hensilae, Cholerae, Elizabethiae, and then Babesia um, duncani. So you will miss some of the subspecies, but you can run for hensilae and microti, which are the most common of those two. Now, do you suggest that every time we run a Lyme disease test on, on someone, the, the Lyme uh, Western blot titer, um, we also check for the other Absolutely. diseases? Absolutely. So I think for Lyme disease, we all should be running immunoblots so we can kind of get the bands there and look at that, not just doing a screen because, again, if you're not hitting five, they're not going to reflex for you to see. Um, but then also you absolutely should be putting on Bartonella and Babesia and you can even add in anaplasmosis on there, but the most common being Bartonella and Babesia. And the reason I say that is because there was an old study, I mean, this was many, like almost 20 years ago, where it looked at ticks in Northern New Jersey. And what they found was that 32, I think it was about 32% carried Borrelia burgdorferi, which is Lyme disease. 9% can... Uh, contained Babesia, but 35% contained Bartonella. So more of those ticks um, harbored Bartonella than they did Borrelia burgdorferi. And in my opinion, things have just gotten worse. These ticks have become more resilient. They're harboring more infections. And there's many different reasons for that. One being, you know, the change in climate, um, but also just we're learning more about these different species that they are harboring. So I think it's so important um, when somebody says we've ruled out Lyme disease, it's like you might have ruled out Lyme disease, but did you actually rule out any of the co-infections that um, we see? Because in my opinion, I'm more concerned about the co-infections causing uh, chronic illness, um, particularly Bartonella. In my opinion, I've, it's staggering the numbers in my, my practice. So I absolutely think that it should be included in your uh, tick-borne disease workup. But is the treatment for the Bartonella necessarily different to the treatment for Lyme? It is. Because if you're going to treat them the same way, then it may not be as critical to identify each subspecies. It is. Um, it depends on how you go about treating them, though. So if you're going with more of the antimicrobial herbals, yes, there's going to be some coverage over the multiple strains. So maybe that's not as necessary. But I do find it important because I might utilize some some other herbals to be more aggressive to address. But if you're using antibiotic therapy, it is different. The antibiotics are different. So for instance, just for Lyme, you're going to Borrelia burgdorferi, I should say 
you are thinking about doxycycline. That's the standard of care. But for Bartonella, it's not doxycycline. You know, you're looking at Bactrim, Rifampin, Azithromycin, so at least two of those. Um, Babesia, you're looking at Malarone or Atovaclone. So the, the, the antibiotic therapy absolutely changes based on the, the uh, disease that you're addressing. And what are the antimicrobial um, herbals that you're referring to? So my favorite ones that I love to put in is Japanese knotweed. Japanese knotweed is the most commonly used herbal for tick-borne disease. Um, It contains resveratrol, which I'm sure a lot of us have heard about as that potent antioxidant that kind of gave red wine its fame for being healthy. Um, But it's it's, um, a great antimicrobial. Um, It will hit, it's been studied to hit Borrelia burgdorferi, Babesia, and Bartonella. So it's my favorite to put in because I feel like we're gonna get broad spectrum coverage. We're gonna have that great antioxidant, um, anti-inflammatory benefit from the resveratrol. And if you were to use like say a resveratrol supplement, it's actually just, the resveratrol is extracted from the Japanese knotweed. It's just, you have to use the whole plant or the whole uh, herb of Japanese knotweed to address the antimicrobial portion. My second favorite one is, it's called Cryptolepis. Cryptolepis is another herb that has been studied to be able to address all three of those infections. I call them the three Bs. So those are two like main ones that you can feel really good putting in. Um, But then depending on the infection, which one it is, there's other herbs that could be a nice addition to that to be more aggressive at addressing the infection. And how long would the person have to take this for? It's a great question. So with the traditional um, thought or the standard of care for um, Lyme disease or tick-borne disease, they, I'm going to say Borrelia burgdorferi, they're going to say 30 days of doxycycline. However, we do know that about a third of patients have post um, Uh, treatment Lyme disease, meaning that they're still experiencing symptoms after they have been treated for Lyme. Um, If you're talking about Babesia, Babesia infects our red blood cells. The turnover of our red blood cells is 120 days. So you really have to be treating for at least four months. I feel that you can eradicate these infections as long as you treat for a sufficient amount of time. And when I first started working in this field, I was saying, okay, nine months of antimicrobial therapy, we can usually eradicate. But actually, because these infections are, they've, they're just smart. They're, are, they're persistent and they're stubborn and they love their life in your body. I really do treat with antimicrobials and I say antimicrobial herbals for two years. Now that doesn't mean things won't get better. Things will definitely get better. But I like to make sure I can clear that infection. And you know, I can never promise you're never going to get infected again. But I just think where we, la- where where we're failing these people who have tick-borne disease is we are not treating for long enough. And a lot of my colleagues in this field would agree with that. And um, they do not just treat for the you know standard time of 30 days. Um, it's usually for a much longer period of time. Okay, so I have two questions. If antimicrobial herbals can take care of all these infections, why are we even giving patients antibiotics? That's the first question, because I, I, I mean, I always prefer herbal when it's available, mm-hmm. 
but I'm not aware of herbal medicine being able to actually eradicate tick-borne diseases. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first question. And the second question is, how do you know when you've achieved a cure? Great question. So I'll answer the first one. So I think antibiotics are absolutely necessary for the acute active forms. Like when somebody has just been bitten by a tick and within a few weeks, you know, they have the um, flu-like symptoms, they're very lethargic, um, they're just very achy and all that. It's an acute infection. I think the herbals are absolutely sufficient when somebody has chronic symptoms of tick-borne illness, which is what I see mainly in practice, right? Um, is that chronic, non-specific, so a lot of neuropsych symptoms, anxiety, depression, OCD, um, dysautonomia, where they might feel dizzy or they might have some fainting, um, uh, shortness of breath, foot and heel pain, joint pain. But it's just regard in regards to what we know and what has been studied, but this is where we fail these patients who have that is because we're using antibiotics that are really good at the active dividing spirochetes and or bacteria. But these germs, as I said, they're much smarter than that. They've, they know how to get around it. They change their form. So they form what we call cyst bodies or round bodies, or they go into the L form or they make biofilms, which is this like mucousy layer, which I think of as like armor to help protect themselves. And that's not where antibiotics, uh, really help. That's what the herbals do. The herbals go in and they can address all the different forms of these tick-borne diseases that they might, um, you know, manifest in, in the body and address, but it does take time. It takes time. And so I guess it depends on the severity that somebody's experiencing, what they feel comfortable with treating and what the practitioner feels comfortable with treating. But I always, always, always recommend putting herbals into your treatment protocol for tick-borne disease. Even if you have antibiotics in, put the herbals in. You're going to get a much uh, more effective result. And at what point would you say, okay, this person um, has been cured of the Lyme disease mm -hmm. or the tick-borne disease? Because the, the blood test is always going to show the antibodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, again, it comes down to symptoms, right? So that the symptoms have resolved and have not come back for a few months, but also I try to wait for there to be some other type of stressor. So for instance, say somebody were to get COVID or somebody were to get the flu or a virus, and they don't then have the complaints of their tick-borne symptoms coming back. That shows me that, 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 that we have been successful at eradicating that infection. And it is nice. I do see in my practice though, that the antibodies, I do get negatives after treating for an extended period of time, the antibodies will not be present. They will become negative, but that's with extensive treatment. So I also use that. And if I do get a negative result, I will wait about three months before I take them off just to make sure number one, it wasn't a false negative and two kind of in that time frame, there's usually some sort of stressor that is going to challenge the body and we'll see if the symptoms uh, come up or not. But if they don't come up, I feel very, very comfortable at starting to wean and take off of the antimicrobial herbals. And I've seen this repeatedly in the practice that people um, to eradicate the infection have been great. Right. 
So um, coming back to the long COVID, mm-hmm. um, how do you treat that? So long COVID, I, um, you know, some of my favorite things to put in for long COVID is going to be specialized uh, pro-resolving mediators. So these are called SPMs. Um, they help with the health of the macrophages, but this is a great anti-inflammatory, antihistamine, and also immunomodulatory. And it's been one of my favorite ones to put in, and I've had really good success with that. Glutathione is another one, as we've seen a lot of research come out about glutathione for just decreasing the severity um, of the illness, just because it helps to decrease um, the oxidative stress and the pro-inflammatory cytokines. Vitamin C, I'll do that at high doses. Um, You know, I guess not as high as say like you were to do an IV, but I will go up to six thousand milligrams per day but I do it in increments so 2,000 milligrams three times a day I find that to be helpful and I do put in an antihistamine of some sort and so with that I really like quercetin that also got a lot of um, you know research behind it for uh, long COVID and it helps with because it's a zinc ionophore it helps to bring zinc inside of the cell but it also helps to decrease the the mast cell response and I think that's also partially what happens. Um, You know, the mast cells are playing a role in these long COVID um, infections and why there's people are more sensitive. They're having all, you know, many different symptoms. So it helps to support the mast cells there. So those are some of my favorites that I will implement when somebody is presenting with long COVID or just to do prophylactically. When somebody does have a COVID infection, those are ones I'll put in um, just to help try to decrease the the possibility of of moving to a long COVID. Potential for long COVID. Yeah. So you mentioned the glutathione, which Mm -hmm. is a a great um, supplement. It's a great, you know, uh, really good for the body. But um, how do you give the glutathione? It's not an easy thing to find. Um, Meaning, so glutathione, it's a sulfur-based product, so it can be difficult for taste-wise. Some people don't tolerate the taste, but I do use liposomal glutathione. Um, So there's a few companies that will have some liposomal forms that I find to be sufficient to implement. Um, And other people will do like IV glutathione. So whether it's through a push or through a drip, which can also be very effective as well. But I use the liposomal form in my practice. Yeah, I find that it's difficult. If I tell people to take glutathione, they come back and they say they can't find it. Um, similarly, cysteine. Um, Interesting. Some, I have two yes. companies that I like if you want me to. Is that okay if I, I say them? Uh, I don't think you can say them okay. on air, but you can tell me later. Awesome. Yeah. I'll tell you then. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I'll ask you about that. Sure. So we're talking about autoimmune, and obviously the autoimmune system is, you know, it's out of control right now. It's mm-hmm. epidemic. But I wondered if you had some tips for people who have eczema, mm. severe eczema, mm. because as you know, there are all these new fandangled um, medications available mm. and they're on the TV advertising, you know, your skin could look like this if you take this and that. Uh, and then at the, at the end, they start telling you all the side effects of it. Mm. Um, but that's in a hushed voice. And my feeling is that even though we have these new medications for eczema, psoriasis, perhaps there are herbal um, products that would help 
people with these conditions mm -hmm. before they, you know, take the leap to, to getting all that fancy stuff, let's call it that. Absolutely. So when somebody's presenting with eczema, I'm really looking, I want to rule out a few things. One definitely being food sensitivities. So this isn't food allergies, which is more of like that anaphylactic immediate response. It's more of a sensitivity in the sense that you are eating something that your body does think of as a threat, increasing inflammation, but the symptoms might not be present for hours to days afterwards. So it becomes very difficult to figure out what is the trigger. I find that food sensitivities are a big one for contributing to eczema. The other thing is yeast overgrowth. So again, when we were talking about candida and yeast overgrowth, that being a big one to contribute to um, eczema. And so when it comes to, to what to implement for eczema, I want to rule out those, um, but I also do end up putting in antihistamines that I find to be helpful for it. So again, I'll bring up the quercetin, but I also find nettles to be a very nice one, um, uh, stinging nettles in particular. So those are two that I find to be helpful. Also, even just putting on topically coconut oil, because if the coconut oil is helpful, that might tell us that there's some yeast overgrowth going on because with that, the coconut oil contains caprylic acid. Caprylic acid is a natural antifungal. Um, in my practice, we also use a woods lamp. I don't know if you have one of those in your practice, but it's a woods lamp and then I can look at the skin and look at the eczema and see if it lights up, then that tells me that there is some yeast there and addressing the gut. So with probiotics and antimicrobial antifungals. Well. We have covered a whole lot of stuff here. Um, so do you have any, and of course, the people with eczema, the people with all these autoimmune asthma should look at their microbiome, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and optimize it. Yes. So do you have any final words of advice to the general population? Yeah, my final words of advice would definitely be to start with the gut, right? And if you are experiencing, um, you know, consistent chronic symptoms, dig deeper because it's possible that your lab results are coming back quote unquote normal or they're just not testing for the right things. So with that being said, you know, there usually is a physiological reason. In my practice, a lot of it has to do with uh, infections and that should be something you're looking at. So if that's tick-borne disease, if that is mold, um, candida, uh, make sure you explore further for that because it could make a big difference in the outcome of how you're feeling. So do you think that maybe NDs and MDs should collaborate more often? Absolutely. So in my practice, I actually work with an MD and I feel like we are a beautiful team together and there we all should be working together to make a treatment team for our patients. It, there's going to be significant outcomes and we all have something to offer that complements each other's treatments for the, the improvement of the individual. So I am very happy to collaborate with MDs, DOs, APRNs, PAs, and I just think it's really in the best interest of the patient for all of us to work together. Yeah, I think the different um, different groups have been operating as satellites, mm -hmm. you know, around different orbits, and um, I haven't really had much contact with NDs, mm -hmm. um, but I do have a lot of contact with 
you know, other um, specialties like acupuncture or, you know, the chiropractors. Yeah. But um, I, I myself was curious about the NDs and what exactly you all do. So thank you for clearing that up for us today. And I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you for and, having me. Uh, yeah. And so for anyone who wants to know where to get their glutathione, um, you can certainly ask me in the chat box and I'll let you know where Dr. Wells recommends. Wow, that was a lot of information. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Nadu Tawakli, on this episode of Wellness and Wisdom. I hope after this episode, you have some idea of the complexities of some of these common conditions and see with proper investigation, they can be moderated or even eliminated. Long COVID is an example of a condition that might have additional underlying issues going on. Similarly, Lyme disease is not always what it seems. If you find that you or a loved one has a range of symptoms that just don't make sense, take a step back and ask for a second opinion and look a little deeper. If you have any questions about the terms we used on this program or what Dr. Wells suggested, please post a comment and we'd be happy to respond. Meanwhile, stay well and I'll see you on the next episode.